You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 125, James Monroe, Part 2. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, last episode we talked about like everything about James Monroe all the way up until the election of 1816, where I already gave it away in the last episode. He becomes the president. Oh, how about that? I know. Hail to the chief. James Monroe. So the uh, you know there's not a whole lot of opposition against uh, Jefferson or Madison during those times, and in 1816, there's a whole bunch of anti-Virginia Republicans, and you know they kind of put up a little bit of a fight, and there's some disorganization, and you know, maybe we'll pick William Crawford, or maybe we'll pick Daniel Tompkins, or Henry Clay, or somebody else. But in the end, it didn't work out as well as they expected. Uh, the Federalist Party just goes into disarray. Um, you know, they were opposed to the War of 1812, which, of course, resolved well. And so people are like, nah, we don't like the Federalists anymore. We're going with Monroe. And so he wins the election, like, pretty much hands down. Yeah, it's so fun to think. I actually went back to our episode way back, episode 12-ish, somewhere around there where we were talking about, well, this era is called the era of good feelings. And, um, you know, these three delegates that Massachusetts sends down to Washington to say, hey, the War of 1812, which I don't know what they called it back then, probably not the War of 1812, but they head down to Washington and they're like, okay, federal government, you're wrong. We're aligning with the British. And, oh, the U.S. won the war. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so they head back, you know. And um, with that, federalism is dead, effectively. Yeah. So yeah, that election of 1816, it's time for Monroe to clean house, and he pretty much does that. There's Rufus King, you know, nice guy from New York, but he's a federalist. Uh, he carries Connecticut, Delaware, and Massachusetts, but, you know, 34 to 217, Monroe wins. Yeah, and, well, we're going to talk about, of course, the both terms, but if you want to skip ahead real quick to the election of 1820, uh, we're going to go ahead and do that. He actually runs unopposed for re-election, and other than Washington, he's the only president that gets to do that, and that's pretty incredible. There was a single elector from New Hampshire that prevented him from having a unanimous vote in the Electoral College. 
Uh, they voted for John Quincy Adams. I guess maybe it was his cousin or something. I don't know. But uh, overall, <laughs> he still pretty much just ran away with it. Yeah. Which is funny because, and we'll talk about that. Q, I mean, he's a big ally mm-hmm. of Monroe. He's he's doing all kinds of stuff for his buddy. But anyway, so we know the Democratic Republican Party. They are the people who really win this first wave of American politics is the death of federalism. It, it ends with the death of federalism. And Monroe's like, okay, there's one political party and we've got this era of good feelings that is going to last during his whole time in office. But what better way of kicking off his role as the president than to take a tour of the country. And it's kind of interesting to note because up until this point, presidents didn't really go anywhere. And presidents generally didn't give a lot of speeches. I mean, keep in mind that outside of your inaugural address, what are you going to do? You're going to write a decree and say, hey, Congress, (laughs) hey, clerk in Congress, read this and I'm at work down the street. (laughs) (laughs) Call me if you need anything. But the presidents, they they stayed in Washington, D.C., and they very rarely spoke in in any formal setting. So we've got a few problems here at home and on the domestic front. Uh, I mean, Monroe is still going to come out looking clean through all this. He's still going to come out being really popular. But there's a lot of these policies at time that are considered what you could say nationalist. And the country... You know, some people are really hardcore nationalists. We've just come out of, you know, not that many years before, a war that distinguished us as our own country once and for all. And the country's starting to fracture because some people are moving away from that ideal of the the country being the best in the world. And so there's also the panic of 1819. There's, you know, a depression that follows that. And then, of course, there's the application for statehood by the Missouri Territory because they wanted to be a slave state. And that fails. And there's the Missouri Compromise that resolves that struggle. But all that to say, there's all these problems here at home on the home soil. And all through it, somehow, Monroe is coming out squeaky clean. He's handling things to the best of his ability. People are kind of looking past the fact that some of them aren't being dealt with the best because he's the only real political party there is at the time. Yeah. And you think about some of these issues, it exposes to a certain extent, some of the weaknesses of the, of the Republicans, the democratic Republicans, that is, you know, with the whole thing of the panic of 1819 here, the democratic Republicans were the ones who were opposed to having a national bank. Well, why do you have this panic of 1819? That's because most people were just kind of borrowing things and living on credit, which we see over and over again when you have too many people relying on credit. How are you going to back that up? It's The bomb's going to fall out. And 
in, in my mind, that seems to be a, a weakness of the, of the Republicans at this time. Um, but you kind of had to make that shift in a way from this almost a high-end bartery, bartering system to, well, having some sort of bank. <laughs> so, so there's this, this maturing of our country that is happening this depression almost had to happen to realign things. And then the issue of slavery. I mean, this is still 40 years before South Carolina secedes from the union and, and you have the other Southern states follow. Uh, There are some writings that they have found from Madison talking about the importance of preserving the union and looking down the road and, perhaps seeing the country become split as a result of this issue of slavery. So lots of uh, weaknesses in our country are starting to show themselves at this time. Yeah. And I mean, that's not the only, those aren't the only controversies, the ones that are being mentioned. We forget sometimes about the fact that Native Americans and indigenous Americans are hugely being mistreated and pushed around and everything. And Monroe in 1817 says, hey, Andrew Jackson, remember me? Um, Why don't you go down to Spanish Florida and all the Seminole Indians that are down there, go ahead and pursue them. And then in the meantime, punish Spain. Punish the Spanish people for uh, for aiding them. And so, of course, Jackson does what he does, and he's a good soldier and goes and takes care of things. And everybody's insane about it. And a whole congressional investigation opens up, and it's dubbed the First Seminole War. We don't talk about the wars between the United States and the American Indians, but they were there. They happened. There were lots of people on both sides that died and many horrific deaths at that point. So, uh, you know, we're, we're still seeing some of the effects of those things today. But um, this is all Monroe. Monroe thinks that pretty much, well, they don't need to be stuck in their old ways. We're actually helping them. They don't need to be in the hunting stage. They need to be agricultural. And, you know, he, he was noted as saying, a hunter or savage state requires a greater extent of territory to sustain it then it's compatible with progress and just claims of civilized life. So essentially he's saying, you're taking up too much room and we're going to stop that. We're going to assimilate you into our our culture. And, um, you know, Congress to the, mo- to the majority of the extent says, no, we're going to ignore that. But, um, you know, it, it creates a, a movement uh, and ripple effect for sure for years to come. Yeah, it's fascinating to note just how uh, from the beginning – where were we going with this whole United States thing? <laughs> we Did we have that desire to fill the continent? And right. to a large extent, it didn't seem as urgent. But then you had the surprise of the Louisiana Purchase, just that massive amount of land that America was now responsible for. We talked about that just a couple of episodes about ago about how Thomas Jefferson, you know, he, this seemed a little inconsistent with his whole 
states' rights, the you know, the very weak central government. But oh, we have this land now that all of a sudden has made the United States of America a huge country. And you have this concept of manifest destiny. I mean, it's it here it is. We need Florida. We need to go across the continent. Uh, and boy, it, it's coming at a great expense to indigenous peoples and uh, to how we relate to, well, the European powers. And uh, speaking of which, <laughs> what's going on in Europe at the time is a whole lot of craziness. And, and real quick, it's worth mentioning that Andrew Jackson may have misunderstood Monroe when he went to Florida, uh, into the Spanish territory, because Monroe actually later denies giving Jackson that authorization. Um, you know, I don't think Andrew Jackson was one to really care uh, whether or not he was, um, you know, taking over a territory. He seemed kind of just like, a, I'm going to do this, and that's the way it's going to be. So for him to say Monroe said it and Monroe to say he didn't, who knows who was really telling the truth. But I think it's worth noting that there was some controversy there even between the two. Yeah. Which leads to the whole thing. What's going on with Spain? So Florida, through a series of events, and it does get a little complicated, but what we're going to mention is that through a series of events, Florida does become a part of the United States in 1821. And there are a lot of things that bring Spain to the point where they're willing to give up Florida. Some of them have to do what's, with what's going on in Europe, where you have France beating down the door of Spain, saying, hey, we're going to beat you into submission to different alliances that are happening with the Russians, with the Austrians, with the Prussians, with Great Britain, with France. A lot of things are going on in Europe that is beyond the scope of this particular podcast. There's a <laughs> lot of information out there about what's going on. But what it all comes down to is... The United States is now a major player on the international scene. And Europe still sees, oh, the little old thing that's going on over there in North America, that United States thing. Yeah, they're a country, but they're not very important or prominent on the international stage. Well, Monroe comes up with this decree that says, hey, Europe, stay out of the colonization business in the Western Hemisphere. It's later known as the Monroe Doctrine. It doesn't get that name until probably 30 years later. But for the purposes of talking about James Monroe, he comes out and says, stay out, Europe. Yeah. And I mean, he says more specifically... Um, okay, so if any European nations come in and take control of any of these states in North or South America, um, we're going to view that as, quote, the manifestation of an unfriendly disposition toward the United States. So essentially he's saying, <laughs> don't do it or this means war. 
And, right. <laughs> uh, you know, he's also saying during that time, we're also going to stay out of your business. So don't worry. We're not just going to come take over your area. We're going to, we're not going to interfere with anything that's existing European. We're not going to come over and take stuff that Europe could have any kind of claim to. And, but just so you know, don't come on our territory or we're going to punch you in the mouth. And, you know, it's funny because this is Monroe's most famous declaration. It's his, it's called the Monroe Doctrine. When you hear about James Monroe, or even if you haven't heard about James Monroe, you've probably heard the Monroe Doctrine. And really, it's John Quincy Adams who uh, designs this this bill, who comes up with the doctrine, who cooperates with Britain to actually write it. And they, they get together to basically thwart Spain's power because they know that new countries or small countries or Republican-type countries aren't going to be able to stand up against Spain. So if we want to succeed against Spain and not be taken over by Spain, we need to help these little countries by this doctrine that we have. Later on, it seems as though some of the Latin, country, Latin American countries resented such a statement saying... United States itself was trying to be imperialistic, but in fact, the original intent of it was so the different empires in Europe would not interfere with the affairs in these countries. So you can take it as you will, if you yeah. agree with the doctrine or not, or you feel that it changed for the better or worse, it played a huge role in really securing the liberties we hope, securing the liberties of many people in the Western Hemisphere. So, of course, the Monroe Doctrine is a much more expansive conversation that we could have. And, you know, there's a whole, whole series of podcasts about it. But for now, those are kind of the, the bullet points that you need to know. What you also should know is that Monroe's cabinet was, you know, actually pretty well balanced. He gets John C. Calhoun, who is the Secretary of War, and he's a Southerner, which, um, you know, that's good. But then he gets a Northerner as well, uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, to be the Secretary of State. And, you know, the, it, it's it's kind of refreshing, right, to have some people from the North, some people from the South, and um, they, they both do some dramatic things. But Monroe says, yeah, I'm not going to play favorites here. Um, I'm, I'm going to keep the same vice president for both my terms. I'm going to keep everybody happy, keep everybody working the way they should be, and maybe the country will do better for it. Yeah, he really was an inclusive president who tried his best to uh, get many different opinions in his cabinet. And, you know... There hasn't been a lot of attention given to Monroe's, well, actually Monroe's presidency for that matter, but but his cabinet, just what would it have been like to be in some of those meetings? You know, we've heard about Lincoln and uh, some of the contentions that existed there, but there were some very differing opinions about how government should be run within um, Monroe's cabinet. So... Just something to think about. Uh, when Monroe ends his presidency, he ends the era of, well, having a founding father in the White House. And it's kind of funny about Monroe. I mean, he's the last one who dressed, like, would you say fancy? <laughs> he dressed with the <laughs> buckled shoes and the 
uh, the high pants and all of that. Uh, I guess in his early life, he wears hair long and in the style of what you would think of a, a colonial era politician. Um, but he was the last of that era. Yeah. And he went and resided after he, uh, after he was done being the president in 1825, he went to Monroe Hill. And of course, you know, that was the name then. And now it's called, well, the university of Virginia. So he had a farm there on the grounds and you may have seen that marker. If you've been on the university of Virginia and Charlottesville grounds. So if you remember Jefferson, and James Madison were both presidents or rectors of the institution. And he actually served, Monroe served there under both of them and served up until almost when he died. Uh, he died pretty well debt ridden and um, he sold off one of his big plantations and to the College of William and Mary, or at least that's where it belongs now. And it's a historic site and you can go there and check everything out. Um, but it still didn't make him financially solvent. And his wife, who was sick often, um, you know, there's a lot of debts that were accumulated from that as well. Yeah. So Elizabeth actually dies before Monroe in 1830. And Monroe moves to New York, pretty much sells everything that they have and moves in with his daughter, Maria, and her husband. And in 1831... On July 4th, Monroe dies from heart failure and tuberculosis, and it's kind of wild, but of the founding fathers who were presidents, he's the third one to pass away on July the 4th, 55 years after the Declaration of Independence was proclaimed. And uh, of course, that's five years after Adams and Jefferson passed away. So you can visit his grave at Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. Of course, at Hollywood Cemetery, there are a lot of important figures who um, are laid to rest there. Yeah. So James Monroe got a lot of good things about him, got a lot of not so good things about him. Uh, he was the president for two terms and, um, you know, obviously had a great impact on our country and... Uh, an interesting guy, to say the least. And he's one of those that I think doesn't get a lot of attention because of the era in which he served. You know, it was kind of after the big name guys, but before things really start getting interesting. Uh, so he does a lot of stuff, but he's often overlooked. And um, we're happy that we got to shed a little more light on what he was like and his presidency was like. Yeah, we'd love to hear if you have any more thoughts about James Monroe or the era of good feelings or any other thing having to do with the founding fathers. Cause this pretty much wraps it up for the presidents who were also founding fathers. Love to connect with you on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash election college. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at election college. Yeah. And you can please leave us a review over on iTunes and that's really well appreciated and you know we really do a little happy dance every time we see one yeah and uh, don't forget about the letters between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr you get a couple of cousins who enjoy talking about political history well it only makes sense that we would read 
such awesome letters from two adversaries. So head over to electioncollege.com slash dueling letters, and you can download your audiobook for as little as, well, just under $4.